there's nastic movements and tropisms. So tropisms. Nastic movements. Nastic is, movements. I feel like you got to be a gymnast to make a nastic movement. <laughs> <laughs> Hey guys, welcome to season one, episode 12 of the Every Plant Story podcast, the podcast where we share all the behind the scenes and all kinds of other plant stories from here at the life of Gabriella Plants uh, and around our plant community. My name is Shane Malloy and I'm the owner and president of Gabriella Plants and with me on today's podcast, we have co-host Zach back with us. Howdy, howdy. Zach is our media director for Gabriella Plants and back with us today by popular demand is Brett Weiss, who is our head grower at Gabriella Plants. Hi guys. All right. So um, I don't have a whole lot of housekeeping today, Brett. Let's be real. Um, but I texted you a couple days ago, I, Zach. I text Brett and I said, uh, you know, we got to do a podcast. What do you want to do a podcast on? You got all kinds of ideas. And then he threw some words out at me, which I had asked for the definitions, of course. So I knew it was a good start. And that's when I said, okay, then let's just get together at this time and let's do it. So Brett, what do you have for us today? Today, we're going to be talking about plant movements. Plant movements. Um, get a little bit closer to the microphone. Yeah, there we go. All right. Um, so tell me all about plant movements. All right. So all organisms move. As a living organism, it's kind of one of the key factors to be alive is movement. Ah, I remember this. So, this is biology from exactly. like fifth grade. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so it's all coming back. Some organisms move faster than others, obviously. And I do hear a lot that, oh, plants, they don't move. And that's not entirely true. Um, well, I mean, they'll, they'll like wave to you. I mean, you, you saw, did you see Zach's TikTok? Of the of the the Prince of Orange dabbing? No, uh, that, yeah, oh, I would well. call that a different type of movement. <laughs> <laughs> the, the plants are slowly evolving to be able to do that. We're, but, we're talking about you know classic not, plants, but not animation. We're talking yeah. about plants actually moving, but they will they will like bend to the light and yeah, stuff. So I mean, I seen that. We are going to talk about some of that. So there are two different types of plant movements. There are tropisms and nastic movements. So tropisms are when a plant moves in regards to an external stimuli. So there are tropisms like phototropism, which is a movement in regards to light, uh, gravitropism, which is movement in regards to gravity, which we will get into. Okay. And then there are nastic movements, which is plant movements in regards to internal stimuli. So either uh, water turgidity throughout the plant or uh, nyctinasty is the term for today, which is a plant circadian rhythm, which a lot of Marantaceae or your prayer plants go through when they fold their leaves up throughout the day. All right. It's like two minutes and 15 seconds in, and I am confused. <laughs> I am very, very confused. But All so, right, let's break it down. Yeah, let's break it down then. So nastic and tropisms, and lots yes. of different tropisms. What, what, do you, what do you think is the most common? Probably phototropism. Okay, so that makes sense. Phototropism is the movement in regards to light. So there is positive and negative phototropism. So as most leaves and stems of a plant from the apical tip of a plant, as they grow, grow towards a light source. That is positive phototropism. Mm. Okay, so the negative would be not wanting... To see the light? Okay, so think of the experiment would be if you take a seedling and you put it in a box and the box just has one hole cut out of it. That seedling inside the box is going to move itself to try to kind of angle mm -hmm. itself to grow towards and through that one hole where the light is. So that movement towards and through the hole is positive phototropism. Because it's following the light. Exactly. If you take the box off... And let's say that hole was on the side of the box. So now the plant has kind of slanted some mm -hmm. and you remove the box. It's now going to bend to correct itself. And that bend would be negative phototropism because mm. it is correcting itself kind of away from the light to then get back onto a tract that is then positive again. And the plant, well, and the plant wants to make that kind of like boomerang back? Right. So the plants through different hormones are able to regulate their movements through cell elongation in a way that will always put it towards the most direct source of the light. Okay. So some plants want to move for this light tropism. Yes. Is that the only way that they want to move or? Well, no. So that's phototropism, which okay. is in regards okay. to light. So then, Gravitropism, which I think is 
kind of more amazing than phototropism is movement in regards to gravity. So roots are positively gravitropic, which means, so gravity, as you know, is a force that pushes down on us mm-hmm, and keeps mm-hmm. us on the ground. Makes me heavy. Right. So roots, as they grow down into the ground, are positively gravitropic because they are allowing gravity to push it further down. Interesting. Hmm. Leaves and stems on most plants are negatively gravitropic, which means that they grow against gravity as they grow taller and taller. But to to possess any one of these skills doesn't mean that that's the only one? Like, would it be possible for you to be two different tropisms at the same time? Oh, yeah. These are... All of these are occurring simultaneously within the plant. Um, So really, it it comes down to the hormones that I mentioned. There's five main plant hormones. So each of these hormones work in different ways in different parts of the plant to allow them to respond and move through these tropic movements in a way that best let them grow to the best of their ability under these circumstances. Hmm. So a plant at the same time that it is being positively phototropic and growing towards the light, it is also being negatively gravitropic and growing against gravity. Oh my goodness. Mm. Zach. (laughs) Sorry, I'm I'm processing. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to think (laughs) through this too, but I'm trying to think of like, So, so if you have a plant that is like a hanging plant or something that you would find up in the trees mm-hmm. or something, sure, is that anti? Like, is that still the roots are still going down and the the leaves and everything are still going up, or is that a different situation because it's attached to something that's already okay? okay, so okay, that's, okay. that's a good scenario. So, I would have two things for you. If it's a plant that is normally, I mean, as plants grow up higher and higher, typically they are trying to get closer to the light source, whether Mm -hmm. it be the sun or artificial lighting. Mm -hmm. Those plants are growing upwards, one, to get closer to the light, but also against gravity because that is just, in a plant's nature, how they grow. Right. Um, There are speculations that some especially in the, in the aeroids, there are some uh, Monsteros, Raphidophora, things like that, that when they send out runners, the runners actually will uh, go through something called scototropism, which is darkness. So the hypothesis is the plant will send out a runner looking for the darkest spot because they believe that the darkest spot is actually at the base of a large tree or canopy where the most leaves are, you know, won't allow any light to penetrate so that if they find that base of that tree, they then know that it's something that they can climb up to then eventually gain height. So they're Mm. looking for not so much their food or their water for the day, but they're kind of looking for their home. They're kind of house shopping, if that makes sense. Exactly. But it's interesting that the idea of this runner could be presented with light and they will grow grow against the light to try to find the darkest spot Mm. in the hopes to then eventually climb, which is very interesting and kind of goes against like everything that plant biology would tell you, but yeah, like now this is kind of a, a, a special circumstance. We didn't take any notes ahead of this podcast. So I'm just <laughs> asking you all the questions I want to ask you, but like what do, does the plant know the difference, for example, between like winter and spring? Like if it's sending out those, you know, kind of exploratory, you know, runners to try to find some of this darkness and it's winter and there's not a whole lot of tree coverage, you know, does it, does it get confused? Like, can that lead to the plant not finding what it wants? Or is a plant always going to just try to find like the best scenario it can in the situation be like, well, this wasn't exactly what I was looking for, but this home will do. You have to keep in mind that there's on average 220,000 plants out there species. Oh my goodness. So, you know, using the term plant asking a general question, will it do this or will it do this? is kind of general and will depend on the type of plant and their growth habit. There's another tropism known as thermotropism. So weeds, usually like lawn weeds, are found to be thermotropic. So thermo is weather 
in regards to if you're thinking winter or spring to answer your question that in the colder in the colder months they will actually grow horizontally because they'll stay closer to the ground where the ground is warmer mm. and then once it warms up they then will grow upwards but they're aware mm. of kind of the the temperature and the seasons and will base where they grow exactly on that rather than on trying to find a particular amount of light or or water or whatever exactly now is there plants that search just for the water side of things and don't don't look or aren't prioritizing the light side of it um so water seeking i would say goes primarily back to negative gravitropism in the roots so to go into some of the science of how it works the yeah, way tell it, me the science okay. tell me the science it's it's pretty cool so the way that gravitropism is assessed i mean you got to think like birds they say have magnets in their brains that's how they know where north is, that's how they can migrate and everything. you got to think of a plant. How does a plant know that up is up and down is down? There are cells in the tips of a root, known as the part of the root is known as root cap, and there are cells there that have starch, starch molecules that basically contain this weight and this electrical charge to them that they respond to gravity. So in a root cap, they will sink to the bottom of the root cells, and that is how that root cell knows that bottom is down. Whereas in a tissue of a leaf or stem, they will be on the other side. So like, actually, if you were to take a plant and tip it on its side, the idea of that plant turning and then, you know, correcting itself, what happens is those starch cells will actually fall to the bottom of what once was the side will fall to the bottom. And that plant now knows how to orient itself back again. So you're telling mm. me that that plant is not then bending. Okay. So visual picture, the plant falls over on its side, mm -hmm. right? It's laying down, you know, horizontally. You're telling me that the um, let's say we did it to a uh, monstera, mm -hmm. just a traditional monstera, maybe in a smaller pot, right? You lean it to the side. It, its ability to turn back up, to, to orient itself up and down, is not based on looking for light, but is instead, or at least partially responsible because of this way that the roots are aware of its orientation? Okay, so I'm sorry, those are two separate things. The roots responding with the starch is in regards to negative gravitropism. The starch in the leaf correcting or the stem correcting itself is for positive gravitropism. They're functioning separately. Do they are they aware of each other? Uh, yes. I mean the, the roots so there's there's four plant organs. So you have stems, leaves, roots, and then reproductive organ is flower. So your roots, stems, and leaves are all hooked up through you know, the vascular tubing and everything, everything. So they're all fully aware of each other. Um, even though they can work on opposite spectrums, they definitely are aware. The, to answer your question, I would say it's all kind of intertwined and playing together. Yes, it is correcting itself because the light is upwards, but the plant is aware that the light is up and that it is on its side because of the these starch things, you know, falling down to this part and they're For able the to roots kind of that. reorienting itself. Exactly. That's crazy. So they hmm. they they are aware of gravity in right. in their own way kind of like the birds are in that way. Yeah. That is wild. Have you ever um this kind of reminds me of another great podcast episode that I would encourage people to go listen to. It's by a podcast called Radio Lab. Have you ever listened to then they I think the episode is named if I remember this correctly. It's awesome. I believe the episode's name is Smarty Plant P Plants. Uh, no, I have not. Okay, so I'm probably butchering the story, <laughs> but it, it goes to demonstrate something you were talking about, which is like this whole plants are aware of so much more than like we can give them credit for. Oh, yeah. Because in this controlled lab environment, I forget what pl plant it is, but for the sake of my story and retelling it, we'll call it a tomato. They had a tomato in a pot with two pieces of PVC oh, heard about this. separated yeah. by several feet mm -hmm. from the tub, and yet the roots on the inside soil of the contained pot that shouldn't have been aware of which PVC pipe was where, they ran water continuously through one pipe and left the other one dry, and beneath the soil line, all of the roots were going in the direction of the running pipe that was several feet away from them. Absolutely. 
Um, I mean, and you're so exactly, this is kind of exactly so this correct. is kind you're, of the scientific backing of that in a in a way of, of yes. these tropism characteristics are what kind of makes that possible. By the way, I would totally encourage anyone to go check out that Radio Lab episode. Yeah, it's and, super cool. Like the way that they visual, like just all those NPR shows where they have all the sound effects <laughs> oh, and everything. Yeah. Like maybe one day we'll get that good. But. Um, no, I know exactly what experiment you're talking about. Um, and, and it is very, I've always said it, and I mean, people think I'm crazy for multiple reasons, but I've always said that plants have minds. Whether, oh, or, yeah. not, whether or not their minds are as you know advanced as ours or dogs. Or whether we they, understand it at all. Exactly. You know, I mean, there's um, plenty of things that we don't understand, but yet we find out 25 years later, like, oh no, that was a thing the whole time. We just, like, science didn't have a way of proving it. Well, and then, I mean, going back to the, the starch molecules for the the grav the gravitropism that was the standard procedure but now science has said there are there are plants out there that the root cap cells don't have any starch molecules but they're still able to do negative gravitropism and then other scientists will say that it really relies primarily on some of the plant hormones uh, playing into effect so i mean there are a lot of things out there that we can keep doing studies but because there are so many different plants and they all work in different ways, it's not always one rule for everything. That's hmm. wild. That's absolutely wild. So what – is there like a rule? Is each species kind of uh, demonstrating all these things or do plants typically have – you know, kind of have, you know, what they – what type of tropism they have for their roots, what kind of tropism sure, they have so for light, or do they all kind of – I would say I would say most plants are going to generally follow phototropic and gravitropic growth movements. Mm -hmm. um, that's just kind of in the nature of plant physiology and how they grow. Um, there are different movements that are particular for certain species or types of plants. So um, to go back to nastic movements. So nastic movements, like I said, are movements that don't involve an external stimuli, but are more uh, reliant on internal stimuli. So nicktonasty is the big nastic movement that I think of and that people will um, see and can kind of think of once I explain it. So nicktonasty is the term for uh, plant circadian rhythm. So morantaceae, which are your prayer plants, so your stromanthi, your tenanthi, your maranta, those types of plants will orient their leaves in a 24-hour period in a different way. So it's kind of like a windmill type. Yeah, 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 like a, like a solar panel kind of following the, the sun in a weird way. Exactly, but they they call it an astic movement because it isn't in regards to the relation of the sun or anything like that. And to be honest, they don't have an actual explanation of why they do this. Some scientists say it's for, uh, you know, transpiration and like respiratory things. So if the leaf is folded up, it doesn't, it doesn't transpire as much water. Like it doesn't lose as much water. Um, but general plant biologists kind of, have it out there that they don't really understand why some of these plants do this. But it's not because of the the, the light or the other things that the traditional tropisms right. would cover. Exactly. So like maybe even keeping itself safe from a predator or something like, you know, maybe it's less colorful or something if it folds itself up. Or... Right. And so, I mean, those are things that they think of. So uh, if you think of mimosa pudica, the sensitive plant, um, they have, ter they have turgid movements. So it it's another type of nastic movement where basically they will use these specialized cell groups called pulvini. And at the base of each leaf under the petiole, they can, when the leaf is touched or hit in some way, it will, in a short burst, release the water pressure that is stored in those leaves, which oh. then allows the leaves to fold up. Mm -hmm. It's, I mean, it's hmm. very much a, a machine in that way, that uh, if you think the, the pool is full of water and then you quickly release all of the water, if it was like an, an above ground pool or something, that pool's going to deflate in a way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, or almost like a muscle when you tense and you like exactly. have that like kind of, mm. you know what I mean? When your muscle contracts like that. So, the, they can see scientifically how it's happening. They they understand that the water, you know, uh, turgidity is being released, and that is what causes it to fold up. 
and they can hypothesize that this plant does it as a way to protect itself from um, you know, being chewed on by a pest because if an insect lands on the leaves and the leaves fold up and it no longer has anything to land on, well, now that plant is safe from being eaten. They can hypothesize mm. that, but they don't have any real scientific backing to show that that is why. That's what we're seeing and that's what we're thinking, but we, you know, we have nothing those, to prove it. Yeah, it's one of those situations where you have to kind of like put your own mind to it. But like, as we're saying, plants can have a mind of their own that we may not understand. You know, you're kind of almost, I mean, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't like to be a scientist in that sense, just because (laughs) you're kind of like, yeah, you're coming up with something and you're kind of hypothesizing it. And really you're just waiting until somebody else proves you wrong. That's what what science is. Not proving you right. But just proving, like, no, we know for a fact it's mm. not that. That's, I mean, that's what the best scientists do is they try to find an answer until someone can prove them wrong. Because until someone can prove them wrong, that's the best we know. But as a scientist, you you need and you strive for someone to prove you wrong just to gain more backing to your own point. Now, this mm-hmm. may be out of your wheelhouse because I realize that this is a kind of out there question. But, you know, <laughs> it's just kind of the day I'm having. Is this or some of this kind of wrapped up into why, um, for example, they send plants and things like to the space station is to kind of try to study some of these, like if gravity isn't there, what happens to that molecule Mm. that would normally be, you know what I mean? Because they're they're Whenever they ask, it's always funny whenever they ask astronauts, you know, because they're, they're, they're there to be astronauts. They're there to, I couldn't survive being launched on a rocket, I'll tell you that. And yeah. I know a lot about plants. I don't know about you, Brett. Uh, maybe you, you want to go to space? I would love to send plants to space and do But would do you go out. to space? Oh, uh, yeah, I'd go on space. You'd go to no I'd gravity? You think oh, yeah. You, could, you think you could handle I mean, it? We oh, need, yeah. We need to do the Gabby to the moon. So if, would, if you want, if you want to volunteer to go. If you want to put me, put me in that thing that spins you around, the like centrifugal <laughs> force and all that. Oh, yeah, I love that. You want to do that? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh I would love God. to do that. I've never seen Brett's eyes get bigger than <laughs> he just said, like, I would love to do that. Oh, um, my God. Zach, would you go to the moon? Like, would you go to um, out of space? Like, would you go to outer space with no gravity? I, I wouldn't be the first person to. Like, <laughs> okay, so I you're would, not signing up for, like, the beta no, program. Yeah, no. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't need the discounted tickets or anything. I'll, I'll <laughs> wait until it's proven that I can come back. Okay. Because okay. <laughs> Earth is pretty cool, and I would want to come back. But space also seems really sweet. But, I don't know that I could... I don't know that I could do the zero gravity is why I always bring it. I feel like yeah. the whole, like, falling feeling something I've never really like enjoyed and that's what you're doing see, constantly yeah, see, is just falling. <laughs> I don't know. I'm like an adrenaline freak. So like I, I love all that type of stuff. And if we think we see Brett going around as like a key scientist in our greenhouse, could you imagine <laughs> that guy floating around on the space station? But also the all seriousness okay, though, yes. is, is so, that some of what they're trying to prove? Yes. So there is a device called a clinistat that we actually well, not we, plant scientists have worked with He's here. already imagining that it, <laughs> he's already including himself in the group. I love it. Uh, that they have used here on Earth um, to study gravitational effects on plants. So basically what it is, this clinistat is, is a device that you put the plant in and it, the plant sits on the horizontal axis. So it's laying on its side. And this device slowly turns it, like think like rotisserie chicken. And basically, by slowly turning the plant and keeping it horizontal, they are able to negate the effects of gravitropism. Because the plant can never really... It can't orient itself. Right. Because, I mean, if you think about the starches, they have no time to actually settle on a surface for the plant to grasp which way is up. So in, in those studies, the plant continues to grow horizontal and not up or down because it is, you know, having those effects negated. So they've proven with hmm. some of these plants that have this gravity tropism. Right. That if you do remove the gravity, the plant essentially then doesn't know what to do. And by default right. will It'll keep growing, but it doesn't know which way is up. Th- does that hmm. cause the growth to slow down? Um, no, not necessarily. Interesting. So I feel like if I didn't know where I was going, I'd, you know what I mean? Like when you're on the highway and you don't know if you're <laughs> supposed to take the exit, you slow down a little bit. But Because, plants- I mean, a plant's prime directive is to grow. So That's true. I mean, tropisms go all the way back to when a plant is a seed. If you plant a seed upside down, it will correct itself underground in the soil. And like if the cotyledon or cotyledon is, is the seed sprout, so the very first 
you know, stem shoot. If the seed is planted upside down, it will germinate pointed down, but then underground will correct itself and U-turn because it knows which way is up. Hmm. Whoa. Yeah. So really? from I mean, from literally from the first cells of a germinated seed, there is these innate, you know, put in mechanisms. Biological exactly, way to that know. So it's like, that they so just it's like know. sea turtles, when they hatch on the beach, they all just automatically know to just go yeah. straight towards the beach. And exactly. They get turned around. Oh, well, I guess you have to help them out if they get turned around. But, but that's only if they get turned around by something that's not right. nature. But I mean, there Most is, of the time, they'll figure it out. There is instinct. I mean, it's mm-hmm. weird to kind of use the term instinct with a plant, but it is this innate knowing or understanding that starts at a very rudimentary single-celled level that is just in these plants. That's hmm. crazy. Now, when... I guess that's... Yeah, that that would kind of answer my question. I was going to say, do young do younger plants or baby plants possess less of these characteristics but if it's in you know part of their personality part of their dna part mm-hmm. of their instruction set i imagine even if you take a cutting i'm thinking of taking a cutting of something you know sure. yeah it doesn't necessarily have a root yet so the, necessarily but eventually it's going to get to these it's going to still possess this unless you were to remove so you know the studies the original studies when they were trying to find out what caused these tropisms and whatnot um a lot of these key uh, factors or parts of the plant that allow them to orient themselves typically are in the root caps or in the, the shoot, the tip of the shoot of the of the leafy part of the plant. So if you were to remove the root caps or the tip of the shoot, they can kind of get uh, discombobulated mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and lose their bearings. But unless you were to remove those very specific, very small tip tip tips of those parts generally no every every plant is able and every part of the plant is able to still that's function wild. this way that's absolutely mm-hmm. wild that's crazy also i just want to bring it back to uh you threw out the 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 type of uh, movement as nick nastic which i'm pretty sure is a rapper i'm not sure <laughs> but i'm pretty sure nick nastic would be a really good rap name yeah i, I thought that. that was a person the entire time you're saying it yeah. i was like who is this this guy nick has the nastic. best name yeah, yeah. Like, and he's gotta have a good <laughs> DJ single DJ nick to nasty <laughs> coming to you on the radio <laughs> I love it. <laughs> That's Brett's alter ego if he, <laughs> if he ever gets to it. So what other what other types of movements maybe we haven't covered other than obvious now when when we're talking about these different movements you you said, you know, if you remove parts of the roots that's going to discombobulate it. Is that obviously going to be part of why repotting is something you got to be careful with too? No, no, I mean when I say remove the root cap, this is on like a scientific like in a lab in a microscope level like you repotting a plant maybe will remove a few root caps, but I mean, you have to realize that there's thousands or million of root caps in a potted plant that it's not going to affect it in that way. Well, that's a really good way of saying kind of what I was alluding to, which is that roots are not just the single root you see because right. roots are constantly branching. Yes. So there may be multiple of these cells and different points of a root it's not just a matter of trimming off what we would think of if you have you know pull a a plant that's been rooting in water out and you have a really long runner and you just like haircut the bottom we could do we could do a whole nother podcast on on root cell differentiation i I love differentiation coming next week root cell (laughs) differentiation uh, there there are four parts of a of a root um your root cap your root hairs then there's the region of elongation and then the region of maturation so in each of those parts different processes form and then all four of those parts are in each root that you see so when i say root that you see i mean every tendril of that root, not that just entire, you know, surface. I mean, a rhizosphere, which is the rhizosphere is world, the world of the roots, basically like everything happening below the soil. There are hundreds of thousands of roots going on. And each of those hundreds of thousands of roots have each of those four areas of the roots that all do the different things. I mean, there's so many things going on that, yeah, like, it's not just one 
it's not just one that you would mess up by repotting. There's like so much going on. Kind of like a human. I mean, we have a lot, lots of different vessels. Absolutely. But at the same time, if you interrupted an artery, if you went and chopped something really big, you're probably going to have a problem. Right. But you could also probably get away with, you know, hurting yourself in a small way or breaking something and breaking some smaller veins and, right. and, I and mean, different things. It's like, not going to be the end of the world. If you have something like, and you're repotting a plant that ha- that is super root bound, the general idea is to break up the roots some to then allow the roots to you know heal and grow outside of that conform space that they were in. Yes, you are harming some of those roots that are there, but it is in the idea of overall plant health down the line that you're going to allow the plant to grow fuller and better after that. Hmm. Now, one thing I'm curious, I know this is getting a little bit more into roots and stuff, but since we were talking about the grav, you know, the gravity fed and things, what happens when a plant hits the bottom or what, or what it sees as the bottom, whether it's the bottom of the pot, obviously if it's in the bottom of a nursery pot, it has the opportunity to just grow right out the bottom. But I've often thought about, you know, in Florida, we have a fairly low, you know, a fairly shallow planting depth before you get to a much harder rock layer that you'd really have to be like an oak tree or something to to root through so when a plant hits that does that throw off its you know if it hits the bottom of gravity quote unquote does that throw off its ability to know its orientation if it has to begin to grow roots in like a horizontally parallel way you know what i'm saying like if it has to hit the bottom of the of the kind of water level or whatever and then split does that mess up its own definition of of right side up okay so great question so not only is gravitropism at play there, so yes, the plant the plant root is going to grow down due to negative gravitropism. Obviously, if it's in a pot or if it is somewhere where there is, you know, a water table or whatnot, it will encounter a hard surface or or something that is blocking the gravitropism from happening, and it can't grow down anymore. So that's known as thigmatropism, which is a growth in regards to a, a solid object. So the thigmatropism is going to play with the gravitropism that the plant is going to try to keep growing down. It can't, so that's why it'll then circle and circle and circle on the bottom of a pot instead of growing back up. Because it's essentially pushing down, trying to go down as far as possible, can't. So in that way, it still needs to grow. So it's then going to grow horizontal. But in that kind of circling motion, in a way, it's still actively trying to go further down, even though it knows that answer is no. And if it circles that pot three times, but then finally finds a drainage hole, it will then immediately correct itself and grow down through that drainage hole because it basically found what it was seeking. But in a in a scenario where it's not a potted plant, but potted in the ground, and it were sure. to hypothetically hit it, would it do that same circle behavior? Or because you have more space, it's going to spread out? It will spread out, and that's why some trees, so, I mean, some big trees, their their rhizosphere and their root mass can be found and traced, you know, 300, 400 feet from the trunk of the tree because those roots are just traveling and traveling and traveling. I mean, some of these huge live oaks that we have out here that are 100, 200 years old, I mean, I would would bet money that those roots go close to half a mile from from where the base of that tree is. Because a plant doesn't have any inherent nature or desire to want to stop. Right. Which I think is one of those weird things where in the wild that makes perfect sense, but it is one of those scenarios where just like an animal, when you have it kept inside, you know, for mm. like kind of um, for your home use, you're, you're introducing something that it wouldn't necessarily have, which is kind of an, a finite end. You know, right. if you're using a, a pot with no drainage or with minimal drainage, it is going to do that circling thing, but that's not what a plant would typically find in the wild it would make sense that it wants to keep going because the plant doesn't have any command that says like well once you've found enough Mm -hmm. stop well and you have to i mean these plants and going back to plant movements you have to also think like not only is their prime directive to grow but their prime directive is also to reproduce and in reproduction you want to kind of spread your seed as far and as wide as possible with as many things as possible so these plants don't have legs to walk on so i mean if their best 
way of getting 20 feet away is by putting out a rhizome or something under the ground that can grow horizontally that will pop up 20, 30 feet away in the hopes of then flowering farther away to then be able to be pollinated by something that isn't as close to the mother plant. That's what it's going to do because that's ultimately one of the prime directives. Do you, is that also why you will sometimes, or maybe it's just my observation, so this could not be <laughs> science, right? But like it, at times when you force a plant to become root-bound, it goes into its um, reproductive state quicker maybe than it otherwise would have. Yes. Because it's it kind of sees not no not the end but no light at the end of the tunnel there like you know what i mean it doesn't cap yeah i was i was going to use the term it sees the end it sees an end Um, okay i I would agree with that that these plants have an idea or an understanding that hey i've reached full capacity i can't get anywhere else so either i'm now low on nutrients because i've used all of the resources in this pot or i'm literally fully out of root space and my roots are starting to die because we're choking each other out, they see it as a way of this may be, I I may only have six breaths left. Let me start flowering in a way of, you know, furthering my generations, my seed. I had a, uh, hmm. mid, a I was, oh man, when I had asked Miriam, it was fifth grade biology teacher. And she said this one phrase just over and over again. She's like, biology is all about the babies. And she would just say that Mm. over and over and over again. And it still is like one of the only, like those weird things you take away from school and you just (laughs) always remember, like that just makes sense. And it explains animal instincts. It explains plant instincts. It explains human behavior. I mean, at the end of the day, we're all trying to do the same thing. You want to... Reproduction is just one of those innate instinctual behaviors in almost all living organisms. And, And it's just a behavior... And a, an outgrowth of wanting to survive, absolutely, of, of and furthering like, your furthering your your genetic material. Correct. Yeah, you want to survive as long as you can, and then when you can't anymore, you want something else to continue to survive past you. Mm-hmm. So I do think it's kind of crazy how plants can often be kind of you know we we think of them kind of like you said earlier. We think of them as not having a brain. We think of them not having an emotion, but they're they're still a living organism. They're still at the end of the day driven by that. Bi- biological reality of I got to make the most out of what I can make life. And then secondarily, I have to create something to take over once I'm no longer here. Yeah. Just the fact that it can see that problem and decide, okay, I'm going to like bloom or like if it knows that the end is coming or if it really doesn't have room to grow, just be able to force that reproduction state quicker which is just crazy which is the same thing plants will do too with like seasonal changes like we don't see that in house plants very often but you know mm-hmm. the same type of thing when it, you get that first kind of cold snap you're like oh snap winter's coming again i gotta do the whole you know put out seeds or how you know however that process is mm. that's crazy so what what other movements have we haven't we covered besides me moving things from bench <laughs> to bench inside the greenhouse sure um okay so there's uh anastic movement known as nutation, which is also known as a spiraling movement. So Charles Darwin actually did this first experiment, you know, way back when he was really intrigued by so many different organisms and everything. And we credit Darwin a lot with evolution in plant in, in animals, like with his finches and everything. But he actually did a lot of research and paved the way in plant biology. Um, And so he did this study where he attached a sliver of glass to the tip of a plant and put just above that glass tip a black carbon piece of paper. And what he observed was that as the plant grew, that glass shard created a a spiral on the piece of carbon paper. That spiraling movement, which is the nutation, we typically can't see with our eyes, but it is how most plants grow. Like kind of doing a a spinning twirl? A spinning twirl. Is that like a, 
okay, so the only way I can kind of like, like equate this is like a 3D printer, you know, like a 3D printer kind of like it has to go in a particular path because mm-hmm. it can only do one layer at a time. Is that kind of the same, but on a cell basis, like the plant yes. has to so, figure out which brick to put on it. Exactly. So on a cellular, that's a good way of putting it like bricks, like on a cellular level, as the plant grows, it's going to put one at north, one at east, one at south, one and at work west, its one way at, around. Exactly. That's crazy. Huh. So they actually do develop in like a, a circular motion. Yep. That's crazy. And now, so are there any Darwin plants that, that don't do that? Um, as far as I am aware, from what I've read, generally speaking, plant growth happens in a spiral movement. Which I mean, make it that makes sense because that's what the whole tree. If you cut a tree and you see the rings, it's like uh, the Fibonacci sequence. Uh, I mean, sequence. that's that's something we can go into separately uh rings on a tree are actually a development through a yearly um growth of layers of like a cork cambium and a xylem and a phloem which are part of the vascular bundles right but it's got to work itself around in a circle as it builds up well those actually grow outward altogether interesting yeah so the rings rings of a tree the way that the rings of a tree develop is the whole ring will develop at once outward instead of it being like in a spiral. That's why you of can you can see it from left to right and right. know just the time of how that's long it's crazy. Grown. But at the top where growth is happening, that's where you would notice the spiraling. That's crazy. Now, does that okay. also happen for leaf tissue, or is that noticed for only stems or, or um, like so, all I mean, different we're parts talking, of the plant? We're talk, we're talking like the apical tip. So this is that tip that is the shoot of the plant that you can't even see if it's a leaf or, or a stem yet, you know, like at the tip, tip, tip of it before it has differentiated into the parts. At that point, is the cell not yet assigned what role it has? Or is it just like one of those things where it knows, but we can't see? Uh, that is correct. Uh, those cells would be undifferentiated tissues. So they don't yet know what job they're going to have absolutely at that top, but they come out in a spiral fashion. Right. And then as they're laid down brick by brick, cell by cell, they then gain the assignment through different plant hormones playing into effect. And they will differentiate into either a leaf or a stem or Or on this outer edge of a, of a, whatever, whatever that cell difference is. That's crazy. So we think Mm -hmm. that most plants do that. That's crazy. So, Keep in mind, because we are talking on, you know, the cellular level at the apical tip of the plant, we can't see that with our eyes. Now, some people will say, well, like, what about vines or tendrils that you see moving? That is going to be a, a, that is going to be a twining movement. So we set up, Zach and I earlier today set up a time-lapse camera on some Hoya vines. Um, and I also put some calathea there so that we can get some Nick Nasty you know, mm-hmm. uh, shots, but for the album art, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Hoya vines, like a lot of vines or tendrils are going to go through a twining movement where basically they will in a spiral throughout the day, move around and around and around and around in an attempt to try to find something to then grab onto. So they're doing this as a method again for, transportation and trying to you know further their growth as far as they can my grandpa would call that an exploratory committee (laughs) (laughs) that was his uh that was his words quote unquote was you know we'd have to start an exploratory committee on that (laughs) but that is kind of what they're doing they're kind of just they're kind of observing checking it out trying to get the game plan together for the rest of it but so those twining movements the twining movement is not a tropism because it is happening whether or not there is anything uh, you know, affecting it. Whether or not there is light or isn't light, those vines are going to continually grow round and around and around until it hits something. Once it does hit something, then you go back to your tropism with, you know, hitting a direct object and it's then going to grab onto something and then, tw- you know, twine onto it. And then that becomes a tropism because it is now, you know, uh, encountered a solid object. Now it's always, hmm. d- this is just getting specific on Hoyas for a minute, but it's always at least been my observation that they're headed towards water. Would that mean that those exploratory ideas are still driven by a topism of, uh, a tropism um, of, of kinds? Right, so Hoyas, 
though we grow Hoyas as houseplants, where they come from, they're technically like woody lanai's, which are, it's not a tree, it's not a vine, it's not a shrub, it's kind of a woody vine that grows up in the canopy and will form, like, if you think of, like, a, a, a grape vine. Yeah, I was going to say, um, yeah. on an or On an orchard that they're growing grapes. You know, you'll have the wire fence and it's just growing all completely all over that. That's how Hoyas grow in the wild, is they will form dense mats of vines up in the canopies of a tree. And so I believe that Hoyas kind of put out a vining a, a vine and you know grow that type of way to really just explore and go as far as possible um they at, do it quick oh yeah yeah they oh, do absolutely. it with determination i mean i don't know if you've been over in the philly house earlier today mm-hmm. i mean hoyas you can not you can turn your you know turn your head for a couple minutes and whip back around and they're 10 feet the other direction. Like, yeah, I mean, they can get the, out of hand in the first time loss we did. There was, there were a few in the background and you could see him just day and night, just going yep. crazy mm-hmm. around. Yeah. Just always trying to find something new. Um, and that's why you'll find a lot of peduncles, which are, you know, the flower spikes of a Hoya on the long stretches of vines, because these plants think, so we, you know, so we assume that, I'm going to put out this vine. I'm going to put out this tendril. I'm going to find somewhere far to reach. Once I have something to grab onto, now I've extended, you know, five, six, eight, ten feet. I'm at a place where I have enough support that I can then, you know, secure that tendril, grow somewhere else. Now let me put out a peduncle and bloom because now I have reached a secure surface that my bloom can hang as in pendant, the term would be pendant, where it can hang, and now it can be pollinated by moths, and it's not going to be blown all over the wind. Interesting. So part of their blooming is having to essentially find something physically stable enough right. for them to feel confident in producing their... Because, I mean, moths aren't the most strongest animals in the world. Right. So, I mean, in order for a moth to... Uh, we could do a whole another podcast on Hoya pollination, I've... I've d- dove into that, and Hoya pollination is amazing. Um, but you also told me you can eat the blooms. Uh, you can you can eat the nectar that the blooms produce. It's actually most of them are very very sweet. It's it's a sugary substance. Most of them are very sweet. Um, Sorry, I just had to think. I didn't know because he, he told me the other day. He's like, "Yeah, I really like that Hoya because it kind of tastes like molasses." <laughs> and I was like, "What?" And he's like, "Yeah, you can you can eat it." And I was like, "So he was trying to describe to me the differences between a couple Hoyas based on what they what they tasted like to eat." And I was like, "Well, uh, this one pairs with peanut butter a little bit yeah, better." Yeah, he's like, I, 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 I really need a good uh, Pinot Grigio, <laughs> or, uh, you know what I mean? Like he's trying to pair it with wine. I don't even understand. But uh, the way that. The way that the Hoya blooms work is the moth will land on the Hoya bloom and the Hoya pollinia, so pollinia is a pollen sac, has a clip. Think of like um, like one of those black clips that you use to hold papers together. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It has a clip on the end of it that the moth will land on the, on the flower and its leg will go into the clip and once... It's like a um, harpoon almost where it goes into the clip and then as soon as the moth pulls its leg out, that pollinia sac gets stuck to the leg and now as it pulls out, it has the, the pollen sac stuck to it so it can fly somewhere else. In order for that to be successful, that pollen flower needs to be secure in a way so that that process can happen. Interesting. Just rip the flower off. And yeah. Or, or thing. it would land. And because the flower is moving around so much, it wouldn't be able to actually get in there and secure mm. itself. Interesting. How long does it stay? Um, that's a good question. Um, but, but just uh, like a normal butterfly, I'm just trying to paint the picture. Yeah, it's I mean, like a normal it, pollination. Type right. Of if thing. you think of like a honeybee, they'll collect those, the pollen on their legs. I mean, a lot, it sticks there. Yeah. Um, so as far as, I know it would stick until it finds something else to pull it off. That's wild. Hmm. That's absolutely wild. Yep. Now would another now would it land if it had that pollen from the first or whatever from the first one and mm-hmm. it landed in a second one? Is that kind of what it's so, after? Like, because obviously plants for the most part are trying to. I mean, 
going back to biology is all about sure. the babies. We're humans. We're trying to find a mate in another human. You know, is it trying to find another Hoya specifically? So it's trying to do that same Precisely. leg getting so, stuck. So the, the Hoya flowers are really evolved and formed in this specialized way. So that not only they have that one section with the pollinia that has that clip that clicks that attaches to the leg, but then it also has a part where that pollinia can be inserted and there are parts on the inside that essentially once it's inserted, catch it and the moth leg can come out, but it keeps the pollinia inside. Brilliant. Mm. Yeah. Hoyas are brilliant. Oh, yeah. It's like they planned oh, it yeah. or something. Yeah, that's <laughs> insane. That's amazing. <laughs> that's awesome. That that's that's just incredible. That the that the particular way mm -hmm. because if you think about it also, that means that it's not really interested in a bee. No. You know, Ho it is Hoya, a flower. Hoyas are strictly pollinated by moths. But you know what I mean? Like that's 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 like by de like by design mm -hmm. of the plant is like, mm -hmm. you know what, we gotta create this system that will let only a moth yeah, bees, help us out. bees are already taken. They're yeah, too bees, busy. <laughs> bees got a lot of other things. There's prettier petals out there, you know, whatever the reason was. Hoyas, so like they went after moths. Hoyas like are specially, bro. specially modified, highly evolved plants uh, that I mean you also have to realize that Hoyas are in the, the Apocynaceae family, which is going to be your desert roses, your adeniums, your pacopodiums, which are your, your Madagascar palms. Like, these are plants that you don't think of as, you know, typical flowering plants. These are, you know, very strange, different leg of flowering plants out there that all have specialized, modified, you know, organs and everything that really just further their their evolution and their again what biology is for is about the babies that's crazy mm -hmm. but it's so crazy that they would get so sp specialized you yeah. know because there's so many other flowers that are like you know i'll take a bee i'll take a wasp i'll take anything that has like you know legs and wants Basically, to land any, here any, yeah. anything that can take my pollen i'll give it right and then you have other are, plants like corn that are like screw the whole bee thing like we'll just use the wind yeah, and the wind will just, we'll just like everywhere. we'll just shoot it everywhere <laughs> and we'll just hope for the best and then you get all the way down to hoya which is like no you know, it's gotta be a moth and it's, its, gotta its legs gotta be an, an inch long <laughs> but not longer than an inch and a half like i'm sure it's probably oh yeah fairly you know specific too because it probably can't fit all Types. I mean, moth is a right. pretty big category too. You got big moths. You got baby moths. You got no, absolutely you know, all different types of moths. It, so. Actually, there's very few. I you know, past couple of weeks, I've been trying to devote myself to various types of uh, pollination, and so I've read uh, three scientific papers on Hoya pollination so far. And other than those three, I can't find anything else. There's very very little research being done on Hoya pollination. One because it is so specialized, and two. It's very hard to study in the wild because these woody lanai's are, you know, 40, 50 feet up in the canopies in the rainforest in Borneo that there just isn't research being done or, or funding for research. I was, I was going to say, done. I imagine it's kind of hard to also in those situations, like get a forklift or like, get a, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like right. it's probably not super easy where these things are native to, to get yeah. a bucket truck, you know, up mm -hmm. there to be able to go collect or to get 50 foot up in the air you know that's not an easy and thing to do and these moths are doing the pollination at night so now you also have to account for you have to do the research at night that's wild now is this just because of years and years of adapting and just from way where they're originated from like that it's such an extreme um like environment that it's just years of really Coming up with that specific way. Yes. I, so you're saying is the refinement most, caused by like the mm -hmm. environmental conditions of mm -hmm. the area? Most specialized plant adaptations or evolutionary mechanisms, especially around reproduction, do come from environmental factors. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, I don't know the exact lineage or, you know, how many hundreds of thousands of years ago Hoya split off from Deshidia, which is their most close closely related, um, you know, genetic, uh, family genus. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I couldn't tell you that. Um, but just from knowing how specialized Hoyas are, yes, I would, I would definitely believe mm. that it is something in regards to where they're from. Well, that's awesome. Well, do you have anything else for us today? If not, yeah. I have kind of a crazy question to ask. At the okay. End. So I will go back to I, we were talking about this podcast was plant movements, not Hoyas. Um, <laughs> I mean, Hoya plant movements is what I'm going to title it. Um, the other 
pretty cool uh, Nastic movement out there is contractile movement. Um, so some plants, uh, especially bulb-type plants and some succulents that come from very arid or dry regions, um, have contractile roots that basically will allow the roots to pull the body of the plant deeper into the ground. So they have found that if a lily, if a lily seed is germinated on the top of the soil, by the time that that bulb has formed, it can be anywhere from four to six inches underground. Because the roots are the thing? Because the roots are able to contract in a way that continually pull it deeper and deeper and deeper because in order for that bulb to form, it needs the protection of of the soil. So like oh. likewise, you'll see it in Haworthia where, you know, Haworthia, if they're from the Namibian desert where it's extremely hot, they need to be able to pull themselves in time of drought deeper into the soil for protection from the sun. Hmm. Oh my goodness. So you're, you're sorry. I'm, 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 I'm dumbfounded by this. I, I asked if there was anything more to go over and I was not <laughs> expecting this. It's, so you're saying that like they can literally pull themselves down and that's not because of gravity, but that's because of the way almost like a snake works by contracting itself. Right. Like the roots are literally doing that. Right. Does like that like ca- an accordion basically. Yeah. Does that cause like anti-growth? Like does that stunt the roots growth or is that just something that they can do? It is a mechanism that the roots have in place for the overall survival of the plant. So if anything, I would say it furthers the growth of the plant by being able to do this. And it'll just pull itself down until it finds a depth that it knows it'll be safe and safe from the environment or deep enough, like in the case of a bulb, deep enough that it is able to grow without being open to like predators trying to eat it or, uh, you know, also deep enough that it can then put out a sprout of leaves that it has enough security in the ground that it's not going to tip over. Mm. That's crazy. Now, would you say that that behavior is still driven by kind of what we talked about earlier with the plant knowing which way is right and wrong. Like if, oh, if, if you if you were to take what you just said now and you do the whole turn it on its side, mm-hmm. is it still capable of so, pulling itself or is it kind of, is it using, I guess what I'm asking is, is, is it using like feedback, like a response from the leaves to say, okay, now I'm far so, enough down or is the roots itself know how deep the root needs to be and that's what it's going for. To summarize... A tropism or tropic movement is a movement in regards to external stimulus, like the sun or gravity. Contractile movement is a nastic movement that is in regards to an internal stimuli. So the plant doesn't need gravity or the sun or anything. It does have the hormone level and the differentiation in its own body to be able to sense when enough is enough. So in the basic, same, it has understanding yes, of it, itself. Yes. And in the same way, these Haworthia in the desert that can pull themselves deep into the soil, once it starts raining again, their contractile roots can release and it can move itself back up. Oh, snap. <laughs> so, <laughs> that so was going to be my next question are, is can yeah, it go back fully up? Aware. Okay. Yes, they're fully aware and they know how to adjust as needed. But they're doing that within their own mind. I'm putting air quotes, right. but you know, a mind of their own, Absolutely. not relying on necess- so the but that answers the question. It's not the roots are going far enough down to get to 98 degrees instead of 120 or whatever, like the environmental factor would be. It kind of in and of itself knows whether or not essentially it's getting hurt or it's yes. getting sunburnt, not how many inches it is. And there's so many, there's just so many variables and factors that go into play. I mean, it's crazy to think that there are five main plant hormones, but these five hormones kind of, are responsible for all of these things that we've discussed and able to regulate and move and grow and change and spin all these different plant parts just to further their growth to the best of their ability. Every plant has a story. Yes. That's oh, that's yeah. crazy. Yes. Now, one last question before we go, just because to get back to the Hoya chat. Sure. Um, with the whole like, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just distracted and I want to ask this question and you probably don't even know the answer, but it, with the Hoya always sending out its search Committee looking for uh-huh. something, right? Now, if you took that 
and you put it into zero gravity. By by its tropisms, would it still because it's not okay? So the a tw- twining movement is a nastic movement. Okay, so it's one that it the is plant separate from knows. gravity. It will continue to spin even if it was upside down, or it was unaware based on gravity or right. the sun or whatever. It would still just know based on its own. Absolutely, that's crazy. You did know the answer. Look at that. <laughs> that's crazy. You tried so, to stump them. But... Yeah, I know. So you guys have a time lapse of a. Uh, the whole Hoya. We have, we have twining movement and nictinasty, with which are both nastic movements being recorded on a time lapse now. So shortly after this podcast is released, we will be able to put out a video where you guys can see firsthand what we have going on in our greenhouse. Yeah, definitely going to want to check the Instagram at Every Plant Story for that clip. We'll probably post that probably Thursday, the seventeenth of June or so ish. Uh, the podcast may come out sooner than that, but. We will get that video up to you guys. I know Zach's going to have to edit that. Um, well, Brett, thank you so much for sharing all this crazy stuff of about, course. I mean, this is so cool. And it's, it's such a cool chapter in the fact that every plant does have a story. I mean, we say it a lot, but this is just, I mean, a chapter <laughs> of their book of exactly. the encyclopedia of a plant. You know, this is just one, I don't want to call it small or micro, but it's just one micro, you know, yeah. aspect, you know, it'd just be like mm-hmm. saying that humans are a bunch of muscles. Like it's not quite that simple, but it's a huge part of what they're doing. It's you know? one step to fully understanding or trying to understand what makes a plant a plant. Yeah, that's awesome. And through it, every, every one of us can better care for the plants in our homes and around our communities and in our environment. So that's awesome. Well, thanks so much for being with us, Brett. Um, we'll definitely have you back um, very soon. Like we said, next week we'll have to be on, what was the topic next week you wanted to do? Not Hoya Chat. The roots. Other one. roots. Yeah, yeah. We got to go into Roots, <laughs> Two right? weeks is Hoya. We'll come back. <laughs> yeah, Zach's <laughs> keeping the calendar here. Well, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of the Every Plant Story podcast. You can find more about the podcast on our website, everyplantstory.com. And we'd encourage you to rate and review us on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Instagram at Gabriella Plants Online. And with that, we'll see you guys next week. Bye, guys. See ya.